in three and a half years, in squabbles about Brexit. We've even been arguing about arguing and about the tone of our arguments. And I will put an end to all that nonsense and we will get Brexit done on time by the 31st of January. No ifs, no buts, no babies. Leaving the European Union as one United Kingdom, taking back control of our laws, borders, money and trade, immigration system, delivering on the democratic mandate of the people. And later the speech ends. Let's get Brexit done. But first, my friends, let's get breakfast done. That was Boris Johnson on the 13th of December 2019 after winning an 80-seat majority in Parliament with the promise, get Brexit done. The problem was, did he? Welcome back to Politics, the podcast that gives you all the tips on recent political developments and general topics relating to the world of politics. I'm joined once more by Johnny Langton and James Wilder. Hey, 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 hey. And I'm Edwin Castell. Go on, Edis. Well, last time we left with a shell-shocked Boris Johnson and Michael Gove holding a post-Brexit conference. So now we need to think about what comes next. Well, the problem is the referendum boiled a complex relationship with the EU down to a simple yes-no. Um, question about membership. There was now a series of options. There's like the hard Brexit. It's a bit like cheese. Okay, you've got the hard version, the hard Brexit, which would mean leaving the EU with no trade deal. We'd have no hard borders, no freedom of movement of people, goods or services. Potentially huge economic impact, but maximum freedom to negotiate new trading relationships. So fan of any hard cheeses? Stilton count. Yeah, I guess that'll probably be. Pecorino of Italian cheese. Yeah, I'm a bit of a cheddar man. So that that would be the, I mean, I'm I'm not sure about bringing in all these European cheeses, but that would be the hard Brexit. Come on, as a Frenchman, Ed, what's your your cheese of choice? I'd be be a Contier for a bit, maybe. What about Camembert for a really soft Brexit? Right, so this is the alternative. Camembert for a soft Brexit, okay, which would mean following the majority of EU laws and regulations to maintain access to the single market, though with little ability now to shape those laws and regulations. So not much economic disruption, the soft Brexit, but you'd lose out in terms of any potential benefits of Brexit, which is what the Brexiteers were promising during the referendum. So hard option, soft option, or somewhere in the middle. Well, first things, David Cameron announced he would step down. So now the two politicians who were in a position to gain from all this were Boris Johnson and Michael Gove within the Conservative Party. They were the leave supporting Conservatives. A deal was reached. Johnson would be a candidate and Gove would be his campaign manager. Except wait, no sooner had the deal been announced that Gove announced he had serious doubts over Johnson's suitability for the highest political post in the land and announced that he would stand instead. Political backstabbing resumes implosion of the Johnson campaign. I remember vividly Boris Johnson coming out, I think it was out of number 10, and he had his rucksack on both shoulders and the media were kind of chasing him down the street, had this very glum look in his face. And that, I think, was the same day that Gove came out against him or the same day that Johnson announced his campaign was over, right, before it even started. It it was over before it even started. And this political infighting doesn't actually erupt into a full civil war because very quickly a new front runner emerges, Theresa May, the Home Secretary, and she had half-heartedly supported Remain but was now enthusiastically saying she would deliver Brexit. Her promise, Brexit means Brexit. Maybe not the most inspiring political slogan of all time, but you get the idea. 
Surely she would be the one to bring together the majority of Remain-supported Conservative MPs with the large and very enthusiastic minority of Leave supporters. On the 13th of July 2016, she became Prime Minister. Now, all she had to do was formally leave and negotiate a new relationship with the EU. Easy, right? Maybe not. First things, how to leave. Well, under the terms of the Treaty of the European Union, there is a process for leaving. You invoke Article 50 in writing, which formally notifies the EU of your intention to leave. There is then a two-year negotiation process for leaving, where the country is still part of the EU, to give time for negotiations. Now, Theresa May was keen to get on with this, although some argued there's no rush, doing some negotiating first, then invoke the treaty. But Theresa May, no, she wants to go ahead. Except wait... There is now a concerned citizen, Gina Miller, a businesswoman and activist who brought a case to the courts, arguing that because Britain had entered the EU through the 1972 European Communities Act, which had been voted through by Parliament, only Parliament could leave the EU. Only Parliament could decide this. And this was an interesting case because in the UK system, referendums are only advisory and they carry no legal weight. Therefore, Miller argued, if the prime minister or another minister used their prerogative powers to trigger Article 50, they would be going beyond their legal powers. So on the 7th of November 2016, the High Court rules that the minister or the prime minister could not use their prerogative powers to undo rights that had been passed through Parliament through statute law. It's an important constitutional decision that was clarified by the courts, putting limits on the prerogative powers of the government and strengthening parliamentary sovereignty. At the time, though, judicial independence was put into question when the faces of these high court judges were published in the Daily Mail under the, I think, frankly, disgraceful headline, Enemies of the People. In the event, the government appealed that decision uh, in the Supreme Court, but they only affirmed what the high court decision had been on the 24th of January 2017. So what the government had to do was uh, pass the European Union Notification and Withdrawal Act 2017, which would give it the legal powers to trigger Article 50 um, and do that. And it was given royal assent on the 16th of March 2017. Theresa May then announced on Monday, 20th of March 2017, that the UK would formally invoke Article 50 on the 29th of March. And she formally then wrote to Donald Tusk, the President of the European Council, on the 29th of March, meaning that Britain would leave by March 2019, the latest, with or without a deal. So it's taken from the referendum in June 2016 to March. 2017 to get the actual first part done, which is trigger the leaving and, and request the, um, the Article 50 to be invoked. So, um, Ed, she's triggered Article 50. How now is she going to take that forward and get a, a decent withdrawal agreement where, you know, achieving the impossible, really, of getting everyone to agree with, with that withdrawal agreement? So it's going to have to be negotiating teams. That's what happened in this process. So first of all, there are two, one from the EU side. The European Commission creates a task force of civil servants headed by Michel Barnier um, on his side. And on the UK side, ultimately it's Theresa May, but David Davis with the Secretary of State for the Department of Exiting the European Union known as the Brexit Department, and Oliver Robbins was the UK's top official for the negotiations. So the, the race is on. 
In April 2017, though, Theresa May first of all decides to call for a snap general election. Why? Well, the Conservatives are 21 points ahead in the polls, and she thought she, this would give her the numbers and space to get a Brexit deal through. Because you're absolutely right, James. How are you going to get a compromise through Parliament? Because it's not going to please any of the factions. So her thought is, if I get a big majority, I'll have, have the space to be able to do this. Not everyone will be happy, but I'll be able to get it through Parliament. In the event, the polls narrowed considerably. Didn't go very well, did it? No, it didn't. On the 8th of June... 2017, she lost 13 seats and her majority. Uh, she would have to reach a deal with the Democratic Unionist Party, which had 10 MPs, in order to get a minute majority in Parliament. Interestingly enough, Jeremy Corbyn got something like, what, 40% of the vote, which was more than Blair got in 05, wasn't it? And Theresa May got her biggest ever Conservative vote of 42%. So what happened is that the smaller parties, like UK, were completely squeezed out, back to two parties. SNP went down as well, didn't they? They went down, they lost about 15, 20 seats. Yeah, it became a real two-party system, uh, at least temporarily after that. Absolutely. So although Theresa May had increased her vote share, it wasn't enough So because Labour had increased it by... Uh, I suppose, a relatively greater proportion. And therefore, we have a what is, in effect, a hung parliament with the Conservatives still by far the largest party, but needing the Democratic Unionist Party to get a squeaky small majority. And just a reminder there that Labour's position at the time in 2017 was one of, we will get a better withdrawal agreement than Theresa May will. So that was the kind of narrative around Labour for Brexit, unlike their 2019 election, where the narrative was, we're going to go for a second referendum. Absolutely. And it turns out that the Maybot, as she was known for her awkward dancing stage, was just not a very good campaigner, whereas Jeremy Corbyn actually was a fairly decent campaigner in terms of getting his, his vote out. So what now? Well, to be fair to Theresa May, she dutifully had a go at getting a Brexit deal done. So first she passed her first act, the European Union Withdrawal Act, referred to her by as the Great Repeal Bill through Parliament. So it's introduced in July 2017 and passed in June 2018, and it repealed the European Communities Act of 1972. Ominously, though, one of the 470 amendments that was tabled by Parliament against the government's wishes actually got voted through, which was to give Parliament a meaningful vote clause. In other words, Parliament would have to have its say on whatever deal Theresa May um, managed to negotiate with the EU, and they would have to agree for it for it to take effect. Uh, well, the next part of the story is in July 2018, May published the Chequers Plan, which was a government white paper endorsed by her cabinet, setting out the outlines of what Britain was hoping to achieve. It can be seen as a bit of a compromise between soft Brexit and hard Brexit. So the plan essentially continued access to European single market for goods and a common rule book. There'll be no border between Northern Ireland and Ireland and no border in the UK. Um, and a facilitated customs agreement would have removed the need of customs custom checks by treating the UK and the EU as a combined customs territory. So it's, a, it's a, her attempt to resolve this thorny issue of if Britain and the United Kingdom completely leaves Europe, the EU, in terms of goods and tariffs, that would mean you'd have to put a border um, in Northern Ireland, between Northern Ireland and the Irish Republic. On the other hand, if Northern Ireland remains in that custom unions, but the rest of Britain does, there would be a border in the Irish Sea, which the unionist politicians, um, such as the Democratic Unionist Party, which Theresa May was in a coalition with, essentially, or, or at least an agreement with, would hate. So she was caught in a very tricky situation. Um, 
First of all, though, she had to get this agreement past her own cabinet. So the cabinet met at Chequers on the 6th of July 2018. And supposedly here, the cabinet members were given the calling cards of local taxi companies, essentially telling them, agree this plan, or you can forget using a ministerial limousine to get home, you'll need to call a taxi. And it kind of works, okay? They agreed to it. However, on the 8th of July, two days later, so that was on the Saturday, they thought it through on the Sunday, Monday morning, David Davis, Brexit secretary, resigns, as did Steve Baker, his parliamentary undersecretary, and then Boris Johnson the next day, who was foreign secretary. So Theresa May had trying to get all these big Brexiteer, big hitters into a cabinet to show she had a united party, but many of these now have left. Um, they would not hold collective responsibility on this issue, and opposition was building within the Tory uh, party. Negotiations continued. Uh, the EU rejected part of the Chequers plan, but it does result in something on the 14th of November in 2018. There's a draft agreement on the withdrawal of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland from the European Union and the European Atomic Energy Community. Gosh, quite a mouthful, isn't it? But it's known as the withdrawal agreement, okay? Endorsed by the EU, endorsed by the British government. And one of the provisions is something that's going to become a bit infamous. It's the so-called Irish backstop. What happens there is essentially if there is no agreement on customs and tariffs and how that would be managed, all of the United Kingdom, including Northern Ireland, would shadow the EU's common external tariff and essentially stay within the tariff and, and customs union. So essentially, if we can't resolve this through negotiation, Britain will, when it comes to tariffs and trade, Britain will shadow what the EU is doing to stop um, Northern Ireland being different to Southern Ireland. Uh, the, for critics, though, they hated this on, on the Tory right because they thought this would chain the UK to the EU, whereas on the Remain side, that those who were opposed to, to Brexit, I suppose, or, or ambivalent about it now, they, they still hankered for full single market access. In other words, the soft Brexit op um, option. So no one was happy on either side of that argument. Does that therefore explain why it never gets through Parliament and is a disaster for Theresa May? Exactly, Johnny. It's some of the biggest parliamentary defeats ever held by governments. So in January 2019, the first vote was lost by 432 to 202 votes, one of the largest government defeats in history. The second vote in March, 391 to 242. So again, a huge uh, defeat. Third vote on the 29th of March. And it's unprecedented trying to get through multiple bills in such a short space of time. But the reason is March is supposed to be the Brexit deadlines. They've got to get it done. They try three times, they fail. I remember around that time, there were loads of political commentators saying, why is she even bothering when she knows it's not going to pass? but it's basically because she's working on a deadline. But even then, if, if it's not going to pass, it's just only going to be a huge defeat um, in terms of numbers and politically for Theresa May as well, right? It's her one purpose, though, is to get this deal through Parliament. Yeah. Because she's got a minority government, essentially. Uh, she has staked her reputation on getting a deal through. If she can do that, at least this Brexit is achieved without damaging, I suppose, the economic 
interests of Britain. I think what she's hoping is that the sooner it, it goes towards a no-deal Brexit crashing over the cliff, then maybe some on the Remain side, which is at this point the majority in Parliament, would finally swing behind her deal rather than trying to hold out for either a second referendum or a new government that would give them a softer Brexit. And Theresa May can't move on with any other business until this is resolved. Um, And so we get to a point, Ed, where it's absolute stalemate. And I think, you know, where do we go from this point? How do we get into a position where Boris Johnson then becomes prime minister? Well, first of all, yeah, you're absolutely right, James. And her government effectively collapses to the extent that parliament takes over. Okay, the Commons, first of all, voted to take control of parliamentary business. Again, unprecedented. So it suspended something called Standing Order 14, which is on the rules of, of um, Parliament and the Commons, that essentially government business takes priority in the Commons over all other business. They suspend that, meaning that the backbenchers can introduce their own business. So they hold four indicative votes on the 1st of April to see if they can get some other options like second referendums, soft Brexit. All of them fail, though. None of them have parliamentary majorities. We then have something called the Cooper-Letwin Act. Officially, the European Union's withdrawal act 2019 passed in just a few days. And although it's opposed by the government, it was passed by one vote in its third reading. And what that act does is it legally requires the prime minister to request an extension to uh, Brexit, essentially ask the European Union to say if we can delay Brexit happening, uh, which it did. Okay, that, that vote passes and Theresa May has to extend it and request an extension until the 31st of October 2019. So we've gone from March to October 2019 for the to try and get a withdrawal through. In June, after this humiliation, um, she's replaced by Boris Johnson. His moment has come. Hasn't he? He's now Prime Minister. He's he's going to be the one to get Brexit done. That was his promise. Except the numbers in Parliament are still exactly the same at this point. He's become leader of the Conservative Party. He's now become Prime Minister, but there's no, been no general election. So what first he does is he resigns. He, he sorry negotiates a revised deal, but then another backbench sponsored act is passed, which requires the Prime Minister to request an extension beyond the 31st of October to the 31st of January if Parliament could not agree on the withdrawal agreement. Johnson said he would be rather be dead in a ditch. That was his, um, his claim. Um, so what would he do then? Would he ignore it? Could he be impeached? Which is a process that hasn't happened in the U- a UK Parliament since 1806. The other problem he had is that Parliament refused to call a general election, which is what would normally happen in these occasions, right? Call a general election, let the people say, and see if they can get a majority. Um, So instead, he tries to prorogue Parliament for longer than usual. Uh, And some were thinking this is like avoiding scrutiny of his withdrawal agreement. So, Ed, as we know, proroguing Parliament is a prerogative power. um, And it's quite a a usual standard practice, actually, that yearly the Prime Minister um, conducts. So proroguing Parliament is usually done to mark the end of a parliamentary session and call for a, a summer recess to Parliament, usually a common practice before the state opening of Parliament. Um, and this is a prerogative power. So what is a prerogative power, guys? And, you know, these are powers, as you know, that are given to the monarch and in turn the executive branch. So prerogative 
prerogative powers fall into two main categories, those directly exercised by ministers without the approval of parliament. So, for example, things like the power to regulate the civil service, issue passports, grant honours, that type of thing. And the second, and this is what we're talking about here, um, are those exercised normally by the monarch on the advice of, so requested by the prime minister on the advice of the cabinet and the Privy Council. Um, so in, in this case then, guys, uh, Boris Johnson prorogued Parliament not to call for a summer recess, but actually to avoid debate and voting on triggering Article 50 and initiating the process uh, to withdraw from the EU, just like uh, Ed said a, a few moments ago. Um, and I think this brings us to a tension here, guys, um, between um, the legality of this decision, um, whether the government, the executive branch here, is avoiding that parliamentary scrutiny, which kind of undermines A.V. Dicey's uh, twin pillars of the Constitution with parliamentary sovereignty and the rule of law. And the question comes here, um, is it legal? And the Supreme Court, as we know, come intervenes and they say uh, that this is an illegal action by Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister. So the question then comes about here, and, and a few talk conservatives at the time were saying this, is the Supreme Court, uh, the judiciary, uh, being political here when actually it's meant to be an independence uh, from, you know, from politics with regards to the Constitutional Reform Act of 2005, which created the Supreme Court in order for it, in order for it to become independent. Um, and I think what we get here, guys, is a, is a kind of constitutional um, kind of battle here in a way. And I want to bring us back just briefly to the Bill of Rights of uh, 1689, which removed the ability of the Crown to dispense uh, with or ignore or suspend legislation and statute law. So therefore, parliamentary law, statute law is sovereign in the UK. And this kind of reinforces that parliamentary sovereignty. So the argument here is, uh, you know, it, it has the Supreme Court upheld parliamentary sovereignty or has it intervened unnecessarily in politics? And that's the question we have here. So therefore, in this situation, the Supreme Court had to uphold parliamentary law over the prerogative powers to prorogue parliament. Um, this is where we come to the all-important European Communities Act of 1972, which is where Parliament ratified uh, UK, the UK's membership into the European community. And in this Act of Parliament, it said that the only uh, the only Parliament can vote to repeal this Act and therefore trigger Article 50. Um, and this is why, in the end, guys, Lady Hale concluded, the court is bound to conclude, therefore, that the decision to advise Her Majesty to prorogue Parliament was unlawful because it had the effect of frustrating or preventing the ability of Parliament to carry out its constitutional functions without reasonable justification. And therefore... This decision is not one of politics, but it is actually one to uphold parliamentary sovereignty. And it's a beautiful irony to this, isn't it? So we've had two decisions, that one on the prorogation of parliament and the earlier case on Article 50 and whether Theresa May could trigger it, where essentially the prerogative powers used by prime ministers and ministers have been defined and restricted by the Supreme Court in favour of parliamentary sovereignty. But the very people who were infuriated by these decisions tended to be people who were very much supporting Brexit and a hard Brexit, whose very case for leaving the European Union was increasing parliamentary sovereignty <laughs> because it had been restricted by the EU. So I think there's a, a bit of an irony there within it. Um, and the result is, as you said, there is very clear outcome on that Parliament had to reset. Problem was, uh, 
the, the numbers were still the same for Boris Johnson, and they refused to pass the withdrawal agreement. So instead, uh, an, an amendment by Sir Oliver Letwin um, triggered the earlier Ban Act, which required Johnson to request in writing an extension to Brexit once again, to this time to 31st of January uh, 2020. He does this very reluctantly. But then things change for Boris Johnson. Labour agree to an early general election. The early Parliamentary General Election Act is passed at the end of October, and a general election was going to be held on the 12th of December. This could change everything. It could change the impasse. And frankly, it played to Boris Johnson's strengths. If there was a moment when an unconventional politician who likes to bend the rules to find a way through the Brexit impasse be given the benefit of the doubt from an exasperated public, it was now. Johnson has strengths such as his communication and he has quite good strengths as a campaigner as well. So what are the results? Um, well, he had, with the simple message, get Brexit done, a really big majority okay, of, of 80 seats. Okay, And on the 23rd of January, the European Union Withdrawal Agreement Act was passed with a majority of 99 in the House of Commons. Not a single Tory MP of this new intake voted against it. So the impasse is broken. Brexit is done. Is it really done? Well, no, it's not, is it, Johnny? It, what's, it, what's, holding, what's holding us back? The problem for Boris Johnson and the Brexit process is, once again, Northern Ireland's place in it. Part of Johnson's deal with the EU essentially meant that goods flowing from mainland Britain to Northern Ireland might be subject to checks, which would create a customs border in the Irish Sea. Now, Johnson massively downplayed this, saying there'd be technological solutions or that it would never get implemented because there was a grace period anyway where no checks would happen. Turns out, though, the EU had every intention of doing these checks after uh, the grace period came to an end. Meanwhile, COVID strikes, everyone's attention is turned away from this issue, but not quite everyone, because the Democratic Unionist Party in Northern Ireland refused to join a government in Northern Ireland over this issue until this issue is resolved, meaning that direct rule from London has to resume, because they're furious at these checks. And there are many problems associated with this. For example, supermarkets on the mainland Britain deciding not to send goods over to their Northern Irish branches because the checks would just be too complicated in terms of, of this um, arrangement. Uh, so Johnson's plan? Well, who's going to pass a bill through Parliament that would rip up the agreement with the EU, Okay, which is actually an international treaty at this point, in favour of unilaterally removing customs checks in the Irish Sea, which could have resulted in a trade war. It was possibly being used as leverage and negotiated with the EU, but it was referred to as the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill. Essentially, we're just going to unilaterally stop doing those checks and um, call the EU's bluff. So it actually doesn't get resolved by Boris Johnson. It gets resolved, hopefully, or potentially, by Rishi Sunak. Oh, you missed one out. What was her name again? <laughs> <laughs> Liz Truss. So essentially, Rishi Sunak, whose resignation partially brings down Boris Johnson, uh, and you get the brief interlude of, Li of Liz Truss, but he negotiates probably in better faith with the EU. They have more trust in him because many in the EU just didn't trust Boris Johnson and his word. And he agrees something called the Windsor Framework with the EU that is signed with von der Leyen, the EU Commission President, on the 27th of February 2023. So what the deal is 
green lanes in the Irish Sea that would remove checks for goods going between Britain and Northern Ireland um, if they were only going to be sold in Northern Ireland. And since Northern Ireland is still effectively part of the single market, there would also be a stormant break on EU legislation that doesn't meet the approval of the Northern Ireland Assembly. So a pause in legislation whilst things are, are worked out. However, there's been some opposition just like before, as I, mean, I think far less opposition than previously. However, um, the opposition includes two former prime ministers. It includes the DUP. So why are they still opposing it? And is it job done? Should we, should we care? There are some who argue that essentially this deal isn't quite worth the papers written on because they think that the Stormont break is not anything like a veto of EU legislation that the Democratic Unionist Party might not like. It's only like a, a pause and that there would still be a role at some level for the European Court of Justice, which was again a, a red line. And there were some like Boris Johnson who argued, no, 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 it's much better to have done the um, Northern Irish Protocol Bill, which was going to unilaterally remove essentially a deal that he'd negotiated himself. In the event, on the 22nd of March, this bill essentially goes through Parliament. So they have a vote on the Stormont break, but it's also intended to be a vote essentially on the full deal and whether Parliament approves of it. The European Research Group, that organisation which had led rebellions of 90 more MPs against Theresa May comes out against it. They have their so-called star chamber of lawyers who reviewed it and said, oh, no, no, this is terrible. But now... They can only muster a rebellion of 22 Conservative MPs, including Boris Johnson and Liz Truss, the outgoing Conservative Prime Ministers. So essentially, their power seems broken for now because the vote passed 515 to 29. So it got cross-party support. Essentially, for now, it looks like this deal will go through. The DUP are still in opposition to it, but they haven't ruled out that eventually they might still agree to parts of it. It's just they've said essentially they're opposing it for now. And it seems very likely that this deal will indeed get voted through by Parliament and it will come into law. Meaning, possibly, just maybe, Brexit is finally done. What do you think? Is it? Um, well, whatever happens, guys, I just hope uh, that we tackle some of the pressing issues that the public are focused with right now. You know, things like the cost of living, things like, um, you know, kind of putting food on the table for their families, their job security, and all of these really important issues at the moment that people are really focused on. And I think, if anything, the story of this two podcasts on Brexit and Europe's relationship with uh, Britain or Britain's relationship with the EU has indeed been about these kind of political issues. I think in many ways, Britain joined on an economic argument, part of a single market. And now we've seen the results that Britain is very, very keen, or voters in Britain, very, very keen to think about cost of living crises, the state of the economy more generally, rather than having constitutional battles over membership of the European Union. So for now, I think Brexit has indeed been done. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Politics, the home of short updates of contemporary politics. Thank you once more to my co-host, James and Johnny, hey, hey, hey. and to our producer, Johnny, again. On, Johnny. This is the St. Bart's Politics Department production. I mean, a Boris Johnson speech can be a bit like a Mr. Wilder lesson. Very engaging, lots of words, plenty of talking, and you leave thinking that a point might have been made, but you're not entirely sure. He wrote that, I wrote that. that like last week. Yeah, yeah. All ready enough, to go. Boris had... <laughs>
James has scripted his earlier. Yeah, well. yeah, I did script my earlier. <laughs> you did. We're not having the script in there. No, 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 that's going to take away from the magic of this podcast.